Imagine a world where the mysteries of the brain are unlocked, but not by the traditional means, but by substances that are often associated with counterculture, especially in the 60s revolution. Yes, that's right. Today we're talking about psychedelics. But before we jump to conclusions, let's set the stage. Now, depression, which is broadly just mainly a shadow that has been looming largely over our society and, of course, especially amongst uh, the youth as of recently, and traditional antidepressants have been the go-to solution and have really revolutionized the treatment of this condition. But, of course, they come with their own set of challenges. Now, enter psychedelics, substances like LSD, psilocybin. They've been shown promise as fact-acting antidepressants with effects interesting that last pretty long. But there's a catch, right? They're hallucinogenic, so they have hallucinogenic properties. Today, we're going to dive into a paper that might change the way that we look at these substances. It was published in the esteemed Journal of Nature Neuroscience, and the research explores how psychedelics might actually promote neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to reorganize itself. It does this potentially through binding to the BDNF receptor called TREK-B, which we'll get into a little bit later. So what does it all mean? Why is this significant? And could this be the key to developing non-hallucinogenic treatments for depression? Because that's the key. So stick around and we're going to unpack these questions as we delve into the science behind this revolutionary research. Okay, so to truly grasp the significance of today's topic, we, of course, need to journey back and understand the landscape of mental health, particularly depression. And we have to try to figure out the role that psychedelics have played in the treatment of this condition. So depression itself isn't just a feeling, isn't just feeling sad or having a bad day. It's truly a debilitating mental health disorder that affects millions globally. And of course, over the past decade, we've seen a concerning rise of its incidence, especially amongst younger individuals. Now, traditional treatments, while effective for some, don't work for everyone. And, and of course, that's true for most medications in general. But moreover, they often come with side effects. And in many cases, the relief they provide can be temporary. And this can be quite concerning when it comes to depression because you tar- you, you get diagnosed with the, the condition of depression and then you're given a medication and you expect it to work and it might not even work. And then worse off is that you might have counter effects that are worse than the depression itself. So antidepressants uh, like the traditional ones of SSRIs and SNRIs, which are serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, are somewhat of a double-edged sword. And so the way that they work is they function by altering the balance of certain chemicals in the brain, like I said, serotonin and norepinephrine. And while they have revolutionized the way that we treat depression, they aren't without their challenges. They can often take weeks to show their effects, and there always is the risk of side effects, and those mainly being from uh, common ones such as weight gain. And of course, uh, serotonin and norepinephrine are very much involved in arousal pathways in the brain. And I don't mean arousal is in sexual arousal, but arousal is in feeling of wakefulness. Um, and so serotonin and norepinephrine are very much uh, primary neurotransmitters that are used along something called the reticular activating system. And when you activate this, uh, you can promote wakefulness. And of course, then this creates uh, periods of insomnia where you have trouble sleeping. So There's the issue of also treatment-resistant depression. Uh, So this is uh, depression that occurs where traditional medications just don't seem to make any sort of dent. So there's depression, you give them medication, and nothing works. And so 
due to a lot of these factors, now I'm not trying to alienate uh, traditional antidepressants. They work. They work very well, and they work for a lot of people, but they don't work for everyone. So it's led researchers to look for alternative treatments. Now, psychedelics, substances that alter perception, mood, and various other cognitive processes have been used for centuries. You know, they've been used a lot in ritualistic and spiritual contexts, and of course the 60s saw them being popularized in the West and often associated with the counterculture and anti-established movements. But beyond the recreational use, there are growing scientific interest, or there is growing scientific interest in the use of psychedelics, not as hallucinogenic drugs in order to get high, but rather drugs that target different receptors in ways that we may not have looked at them before. Because at the end of the day, a chemical, if it is neurochemically active or biochemically active within the body, binds to a receptor or binds to something and it has an effect. Right? And so we can take a look at what receptors that they're binding to, and we can see if we can modify these molecules in order to exploit the beneficial effects of these without having the negative effects. So early research hinted, of course, at the, the potential therapeutic benefits of um, these psychoactive substances, but societal concerns and, of course, legal restrictions in the latter half of the 20th century really put a damper on many of these investigations. Now, fast forward to the 21st century, and truly, we're kind of, as of lately, witnessing somewhat of a renaissance, if you will, in psychedelic research. So preliminary clinical trials have shown that substances like LSD and psilocybin have some promise for treating depression. I'm not saying that they're not without their uh, downfalls as well, but what's remarkable is about these psychedelics is that they have the potential to act fast, and they have long-lasting therapeutic benefits, but... As we mentioned earlier, there's a significant catch, and that is the hallucinogenic effects. So even if you treat the depression, but you end up with these massive hallucinogenic effects, you know, you're just sort of trading one clinical condition for the other. So that can create a little bit of a problem. Now, what's fascinating is that almost all antidepressant drugs, SSRIs, SNRIs, and this includes psychedelics, promote something that we call neuroplasticity. And this is just the brain's ability to form and reorganize synaptic connections. So neurons can uh, increase their synaptic connectivity. They can decrease their synaptic synaptic connectivity. Wow. But essentially, it's just modifying how strong these connections are between neurons in order to increase the efficiency of signaling throughout the brain. And this happens especially in response to learning or experience. Once you've learned something, the brain tends to strengthen those connections that have been formed so that it takes less effort to do it again. And it's considered a critical component to many of the therapeutic effects of antidepressant drugs, interestingly enough. So central to the neuroplasticity, one of the primary molecules or molecular systems that's involved in neuroplasticity is... Uh, a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it's just a chemical that binds to its receptor, which is called TRK-B, T-R-K-B. And they're key players, like I said, in mediating much of this plasticity. And this is, this is where the paper that we're going to talk about today really focuses its attention. So with this background in mind, we can pretty much now delve into the research paper that I was talking about, and we can look at how do psychedelics actually interact with the machinery of the brain to modulate neuroplasticity. And we can answer the question of whether or not we can uh, 
at least the, the, whether or not the research suggests whether psychedelics can be harnessed for their potential without hallucinogenic side effects. So let's take a look. The paper itself is called Psychedelics Promote Plasticity by Directly Binding to BDNF Receptor, Track B. And it's from a large group of authors, first author being Raphael or Rafael, I don't know uh, how to pronounce it, uh, Maliner or Maliner. Again, apologies on the pronunciation, but uh, this group is from the Neuroscience Center High Life at the University of Helsinki in Helsinki, Finland. And it was published, let's see, June 5th of 2023. And uh, the article is open access, so if you want to take a look at it, then go ahead and pull it up. I try to focus on articles that are open access. That way everybody has access to actually look at the uh, articles that we are reviewing in the show. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about BDNF and Trek B. You've heard the words a lot now. So they're not just random acronyms. They're they're central to understanding brain health function and uh, let's say potential therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. I'm going to be very careful and say potential therapeutic benefits. So none of this is, is medical advice, of course. So BDNF, or the, the real name for it is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Like I said, it's a protein and it belongs to a family of proteins called the neurotrophins. So what does it do? You can kind of think of it like fertilizer for your brain cells. So it supports the survival of existing neurons and it encourages growth and differentiation of new neurons and synapses. So in other words, BDNF really is, it's a molecule that's somewhat essential for long-term memory. And if you actually get rid of BDNF, then the ability to form long-term memories is somewhat uh, blunted. It's also important for learning and uh, higher level thinking in general. So it's it's a molecule essentially that's that's critical or it's crucial for the brain's ability to adapt and change over time, a process that we collectively call neuroplasticity. So you can say that it's relatively important, I guess. Now, what role, of course, does BDNF play in mental health? Because if we're talking about depression, then, of course, BDNF somehow needs to have some role in this. And some of the studies previously have shown that low levels of BDNF are associated with conditions like depression, anxiety, and even neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, which is quite scary. On the flip side, activities that increase BDNF, some of those being exercise, meditation, certain diets, have been shown very well to improve brain function and mental well-being. It was actually interesting, you know, uh, when I was starting to get into science, that was sort of when a lot of the research was coming out that was showing that exercise was a very potent stimulus for neuroplasticity. And they ended up finding that one of the main mediators for that was that exercise is a very reproducible way to stimulate the release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which can then increase your brain's ability or increase the ability of synapses throughout the brain to increase uh, connectivity to, to learn things faster. So that was pretty revolutionary at the time. So the, the BDNF molecule, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or the protein, is exerts its effect through its receptor, just like many neurochemicals do in the brain. And the main receptor that BDNF works through is called TRK-B or TRK-B. And TRK-B is, or, you know, the, the, the formal term for it is tropomyosin receptor kinase B. And it's the primary receptor for brain-derived neurotrophic, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. There we go. 
And, you know, just to, just to cover our basis, if you think about receptors and uh, their ligands, so basically like if BDNF is the ligand, you can think of it like a key. And uh, track B, if you think of it as a receptor, you can think of it as the lock. So it fits in the lock and it activates, uh, once it does, it activates a bunch of intracellular signaling pathways that promote uh, different forms of neuron survival, growth, differentiation, etc. So the, the binding and subsequent activation of BDNF to track B is a process that's fundamental and underlies many of the beneficial effects of BDNF itself within the brain. So BDNF alone without the receptor, not all that cool. Track B without BDNF, not all that cool. But when you combine the two, pretty cool. Okay, so what does it actually have to do with antidepressants and drugs itself? So like I said, many antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, including psychedelics were, that we're going to discuss today, exert their effects, at least in part, uh, by influencing BDNF and track b signaling. So the ability of BDNF to bind to track b and how much track b is actually activated. So by promoting neuroplasticity, which is, of course, like I said, when BDNF binds to track b it promotes neuroplasticity. So if antidepressants and psychedelics are able to activate this pathway, they can help the brain adapt to change and potentially alleviate symptoms of depression or other mental health disorders. So in essence, BDNF and, and Trek B, to put it all together, are like the uh, the Batman and Robin, if you will, the dynamic duo, the peanut butter and jelly uh, that work together. And they ensure essentially that, you know, the amount of BDNF that's binding to track B at any given time is essential to ensure that the neurons are healthy, adaptable, and that they're actually doing their neuronal neurony things that they need to be doing in order for your brain to work. And if we can understand the role uh, and, and how psychedelics can actually modulate their bindings, then we might be able to understand whether or not they have potential therapeutic benefits for conditions like depression. Great. So that's BDNF in Trek B. So now let's talk about the research from the paper itself, because honestly, the discoveries from it, I think, could actually reshape our understanding of how psychedelics interact with the brain and their potential therapeutic benefits. So first and foremost, the results of the study more or less reaffirm what uh, some preliminary clinical trials have been hinting at, which is psychedelics like LSD or lysergic, what is it? Uh, LSD is lysergic acid diethylamide, sorry, uh, and psilocin, which is a metabolite of psilocybin, which has its bioactive effects in the brain. Um, and of course, psilocybin comes from mushrooms. Um, and what they found was that the psilocin and the LSD can produce rapid and uh, long-lasting antidepressant effects. That's what the many, sorry, that's not what the study technically said, but that's what a lot of the preliminary clinical trials have been looking at. There's a lot of trials that are looking at whether or not giving patients different doses of LSD and psilocin can uh, produce long-lasting and fast-acting antidepressant type of effects. Uh, what's What a lot of the trials have been suggesting is that they might be able to induce a kind of neuroplasticity that's similar to the effects of clinically approved antidepressant drugs, SSRIs, SNRIs. So one of the things that the study was looking at is the direct binding of the 
psychoactive substances or the the LSD and the psilocin to track B. And so that's where it kind of gets interesting. And so what the researchers found within the paper is that both LSD and psilocin bind directly to track B. So this almost acts like BDNF itself. And not only do they just bind, they do so with an affinity that's significantly higher than other antidepressants. Like I said, one of the potential uh, effects of antidepressants in their long-term use is that it can promote neuroplasticity, which then can rewire some of those circuits within the brain uh, to amplify their effects, if you will. And what the researchers found when they looked at LSD and psilocin in this in, in this study was that the ability of the LSD and the psilocin to bind to TREK-B was significantly higher, like a, a thousandfold higher than that of traditional antidepressants. So one of the long-term beneficial effects of the antidepressants might be able to be sped up by LSD and psilocin, which is quite interesting. So, and, and it means essentially that the, the psychedelics have a strong inclination to interact with a molecule that can promote neuroplasticity, or at least to uh, promote its activity within the brain. So the effects of psychedelics on neurotrophic signaling, plasticity, and um, their antidepressant-like behavior in mice were found to be dependent on this TREK-B signaling. And so this is super interesting because what it essentially is saying is that if the psychedelics are able to bind to the TREK-BM to promote its activity, instead of promoting neuroplasticity through some other unknown mechanism, the effects of the psychedelics may promote natural signaling of BDNF. So in other words, instead of some other wild unknown mechanism to change the neuroplasticity within the brain, if the psychedelics, which they've shown in the study, bind to the TREK-B receptor itself and positively allosterically modulate the activity of it, in other words, just enhance the ability of it to do its own thing within the brain, which is to be signaled by BDNF, then it, it, it aids us in understanding how this molecule can actually not create its own effects, but rather just sort of amplify the already known neuroplastic signaling mechanisms that are going on within the brain. And that's really a crucial discovery because it ties the effects of psychedelics directly to an already known BDNF track B pathway that was, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier. Now, what was fascinating, though, is that the authors also found that the effects, these effects, the ability for the psychedelics to bind to track B and to promote the BDNF-induced neuroplasticity was independent of the activation of a receptor known as the 5-HT2A receptor. So this is a serotonin receptor that is of a large target of many psychedelics, especially that being of like DMT and stuff like that, where... Um, it's promoted that uh, the 5-HT2A activation is promotes many of the hallucinogenic effects of psychedelics. And so if you want to look at how something is promoting neuroplasticity uh, and you want to avoid the ability of these to be hallucinogenic, then there needs to be some way to avoid activation of 5-HT2A. And so what the, the question was asking is that we have this inclination, or they have this inclination that, that 
psychedelics can promote neuroplasticity, which can then, you know, theoretically enhance or speed up the ability, these long-term effects of the uh, antidepressants to create antidepressant-like effects. But if it requires the activation of 5-HT2A in order to do that, you really haven't solved a whole lot of the issues because now, yeah, you're getting the neuroplasticity, but you're getting hallucinogens. You're hallucinating every time that you need this to happen. And so if it if the process of promoting neuroplasticity from psychedelics requires the activation of 5-HT2A, it hasn't really done anything that's all that beneficial per se, because you're just getting another negative effect. So what the authors found, though, and, and what they did was kind of interesting, is that they looked at whether or not changing the ability of the drugs to modulate the 5-HT2A receptor, in other words, they, they essentially blocked the ability of the drug to bind to the 5-HT2A receptor, and that way it would force the drugs to only bind to the TREK-B receptor in this case, you can isolate whether or not the 5-HT2A signaling is necessary to induce the neuroplasticity. And it was really cool because what they found was that you don't need 5-HT2A signaling in order to promote the neuroplasticity. So you can give the psychedelics, you can prevent them from blocking, or excuse me, you can prevent them from activating 5-HT2A. You do that, they no longer have their hallucinogenic effects, but they promote the neuroplasticity which through through the BDNF track B signaling pathway, which can then promote some of the long-term beneficial effects of many of the antidepressants in a shorter time frame. And what they're they're suggesting is that it may be more of a longer acting time frame. And so that's pretty profound as far as uh, antidepressant drugs go. Right. So how did they actually? find the results that they're finding. So in essence, the conclusion of the paper is that LSD, psilocybin, or excuse me, psilocin, which is, of course, the active component of psilocybin, bind to the TREK-B receptor, and they promote the natural activity of BDNF. So they speed up that process, which then, of course, when BDNF binds to the TREK-B receptor, it signals an intracellular cascade of things that happen that then promote neuroplasticity, neuron growth, neuron survival, all that kind of stuff that can sort of facilitate learning, memory, brain function, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so how did they actually find these results? So they started out with um, some binding assays. So these are kind of like, uh, I don't know, matchmaking sessions, if you will. They, they test how well the psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, or psilocin bind to the track B. And uh, of course, they found, like I said, a surprisingly strong affinity, especially when compared to the other antidepressants, like literally a thousand times more affinity or a thousand times better ability to bind to the track B receptor than some of the other traditional antidepressants to, you know, so to, to further understand some of the binding, uh, looks like the researchers turned to molecular dynamic simulations, which I'm not even going to pretend that it's in my wheelhouse, but it's essentially a super detailed high-tech version of putting puzzle pieces together in, in order to identify precisely where the psychedelics actually bind to the track P. And they found that uh, there was a direct interaction between the compounds and the receptor. So just sort of confirming the fact that the, the psychedelics are actually able to bind to the track B receptor and they show exactly where it is. So if you want to see that, then take a look at that figure. 
After that, they used a technique called uh, split luciferase complementation assay. And uh, it sounds kind of complex, but it's just essentially a way to investigate how Trek B forms dimers. And so uh, these are just pairs of molecules. And, and the dimerization of Trek B is a, a crucial step in order for its activation and subsequent signaling. So basically, like the, the Trek B itself isn't normally just sitting there ready to be. Uh, bound, it actually has to be sort of recruited, and then it has to, once it starts to get signaled, it has to form a dimer in order to actually um, have its effect. So a dimer is just like two things bound together, basically. So they essentially found that the psychedelics, one of the ways that they promote the ability of Trek B to be signaled from BDNF is that it promotes the dimerization of the Trek B receptor itself, which of course, like I said, it's a crucial step for the receptor's activation and for the ability for subsequent cellular signaling. One of the things, though, that I thought was one of the coolest experiments, uh, maybe because it's the most easy to understand, but but they studied something called the Trek B trafficking. Like I said, the Trek B isn't just normally sitting on the the membrane waiting for BDNF to to act upon it. Uh, it has to be somewhat recruited, and so. What the the team out of Helsinki did, what they what the what the authors did is they they did an assay in order to figure out how Trek B moves within the cells, and it was uh, a method that uses something called fluorescence recovery after photo bleaching or FRAP. So basically, you photo bleach the cells, and then you can see the recovery after that. And uh, I guess it's it's a way to allow them to study the trafficking of Trek B, and it provides insights into how the the movement and location within the neurons might be influenced by the psychedelics. I thought that was kind of cool. And so what they found was that the the psychedelics themselves actually influenced the movement and the positioning of Trek B within neurons, uh, which potentially impacts its function in the signaling pathway. So basically, like the the LSD and the psilocin increased the ability of the Trek B to be trafficked to the membrane so that BDNF can actually act upon it. So not only does it increase the activity of the Trek B receptor once BDNF has been bound to it, it, it increases the ability for BDNF to bind to it, but it increases the likelihood that BDNF is going to be binding to the Trek B receptor because it increases the likelihood that the Trek B receptor is actually on the membrane ready to be bound to. So I thought that that was kind of cool. And that that forms into one of the other things that they looked at, which was, uh, again, another one of the most exciting parts of the study was they actually assessed the effects of the psychedelics on, on neuroplasticity, which is kind of cool. So, you know, a lot of papers, when they look at uh, neuroplasticity, they'll somewhat stop uh, at that pathway saying, you know, BDNF binds to track B and we can change the ability of BDNF to bind to track B. And so it you must pr- promote neuroplasticity. But this group actually, you know, went one step further and, and looked at whether or not it actually did, which is kind of cool. So they looked at how LSD and psilocin influence the spine density of mature neuronal cultures. And so basically within neurons, you have the, the cell body and then you have the axons, which then are sending out the message. And then you have dendrites, which are picking up the message. And on top of they're superimposed throughout the dendrites are these little processes called uh spines dendritic spines and uh they essentially increase the surface area like by orders of magnitude in order to increase the surface that signals can be picked up by each of the neurons and so you can think of like increasing the amount of spines all along a dendrite can increase the amount of information that can be taken in 
from the uh, neurons themselves. So if you think about like a branch on a pine tree or something like that, if it's just a bare branch that has no spines, right? Uh, but if you think about one that has all of those little pine needles on there, those are sort of like the spines. And so the ability of, you know, you stick that stick in water, uh, if it has no uh, pine needles on it, it's not going to pick up any of the water, but if you have a bunch of pine needles and then you pick it back up, it sort of has soaked up or sort of collects a lot of this information. So that's, that's kind of a, in, I don't know, probably not a great comparison, but that's what it's got. So that's what they looked at. They looked at how the psychedelics were able to either, um, promote the, uh, growth of these spines on the, or they looked at how dense the spines were, on mature neural cultures to see how they uh, the the psychedelics affected them, and so what they what they found was that uh, the compounds, especially LSD and psilocin, actually notably increased the spine density of the mature neural cultures, which is pretty cool. So I don't know if it just promoted the stabilization, and so it didn't have the normal degradation of the spines, or if it actually grew them. But anyways, either way, there was more dendritic spines on the neurons that were exposed to the psilocybin and the LSD compared to those of controls. So it suggests that the psychedelics can actually enhance neural connectivity, which is, of course, like I said, a key aspect of neuroplasticity. Now, like I, I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the key things when trying to figure out whether or not that these psychedelics can change neuroplasticity is to see whether or not it's 5-HT2A receptor dependent because if it is then you're still dealing with the hallucinations and well then you still have a problem so uh one of the things that they did and one of the pivotal findings was that the effects of the psilocin and the lsd on the neuroplasticity don't depend on the 5-ht2a receptor signaling but they depend on the bdnf signaling and this distinction is crucial because it suggests that the therapeutic effects might be separated from, or they might be able to be separated from the hallucinogenic properties. So these experiments, well, intricate, I guess they, you know, they, they paint a detailed picture of how the psychedelics interact with the brain's own machinery. And they, they offer somewhat of a glimpse, I guess you could say, into potential mechanisms behind uh, the observed antidepressant effects and... I don't know. In my opinion, I think it opens the door for further exploration and understanding, which I think is some of the best studies that can be done. One of my mentors in graduate school always said, you know, the best studies are not the ones that answer questions, but the best studies are the ones that leave you with more questions when you're done than you started. And so it sort of pushes the scientific frontier forward. And this study certainly did that. So I think it is a significant leap forward, um, especially in this field. All right. So what are some of the conclusions? First and foremost, the research reshapes our understanding of psychedelics, no longer just relics of the, the 60s counterculture. These compounds actually emerge as powerful modulators in the brain. I think that's kind of cool. And they directly interact with key pathways like BDNF and TREC-B. And, and the study's findings kind of open the door to the development of new antidepressive treatments. And in order to do that by targeting the TREC-B receptor, uh, they seem to do that without activating the hallucinogenic 5-HT2A receptor, which might give us a way to harness the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics without the associated hallucinogens. And that could revolutionize treatments for depression, especially for those that don't respond to traditional medications. But again, 
there needs to be a way to harness the power of the psychedelics, let's say, on this Trek B BDNF pathway without actually activating the 5-HT2A receptor. Because this study shows that, yes, the psychedelics have the ability to bind to Trek B and promote BDNF signaling. We've said that at nauseum. And by doing that, they promote neuroplasticity. And that process does not require 5-HT2A. However, when you give the psychedelics under normal conditions, you are going to activate 5-HT2A. So while that part of the pathway, or while that part of the drug is not necessary for the neuroplasticity, in a normal condition, it's going to happen. So there needs to be a way in order to prevent that from happening so that the only effect that you get from the hallucinogenics or the psychoactive compounds is the BNF Trek B. So that's sort of the... uh, the crux. But in essence, the the research itself offers, I think, kind of fresh insights into neuroplasticity. And it, it by understanding, I guess, how psychedelics enhance neural connectivity and promote BDNF signaling, it gives us a little bit of a deeper appreciation of, of the brain's ability to adapt um, under many different molecules, which is kind of cool. So it could have implications for things other than just depression, um, because neuroplasticity is and its lack thereof or modulation of is involved in a range of neurological and psychiatric disorders it's not just depression right this can have broad implications for many different conditions of mental health so beyond depression uh, i think the findings could have implications for other other mental health like anxiety ptsd even substance addiction perhaps might benefit from treatments that target the bdnf track b pathway which could offer hope to, of course, millions of patients. Now, I'm not saying that psychedelics can be the answer to that, but psychedelic drugs themselves, being just pharmaceutical molecules, seem to have a beneficial effect within them, but it needs to be able to be fleshed out more so that it can separate those beneficial effects from that of the negative effects. And that's sort of... You know, it's it's a crux, but it's something I think that in the future can be addressed. Now, that being said, the use of psychedelics, you know, without modifications, right? So this is psychedelics themselves, even in therapeutic contexts, always raises ethical and societal questions. So how do we, you know, how do we ensure safe and controlled use? How do you navigate the potential for misuse and over-commercialization? There's all you know, the questions that researchers, clinicians, and policymakers are going to need to grapple with. So in essence, you know, the the research doesn't just offer answers. Like I said, it promotes new questions, new avenues for exploration, and and that's that's pretty cool. So before we end, a couple of the caveats, one of the most evident challenges with psychedelics, like I said, many times ad nauseum now is their hallucinogenic properties. And while the study suggests that there are potential ways to separate the therapeutic effects from the hallucinogenic ones, again, in real-world scenarios, ensuring this separation is very complex and requires further research. Obviously, also the long-term effects of the psychedelics, even in controlled therapeutic settings, settings, remains of concern. There's potential for something known as hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, which is, you know, the long-term effects of, of it's an irreversible episodes of psychosis that, that can be retained following 
the ingestion of psychedelics in certain populations. So ensuring safety over extended periods is paramount. And of course, translating the, the findings to humans. A lot of these studies were done in mice. So while the study does provide compelling data, much of it is based on experiments in mice and cellular models, which is great to understand mechanisms. But whenever you take this and you need to translate it to human patients with all of the different complexities and the behavioral components, uh, it becomes a significant challenge. You know, one of the ways that they measured for the hallucinogenic effects was by looking at the head twitch response from a mouse. So basically, like, you can give these compounds to a mice, you can look how much the head is moving, and it gives you an idea of whether or not they are hallucinating from the, the drugs themselves. And so, you know, that's in a, in a human, it becomes a little bit more complex than this. Obviously, they do more than just uh, twitch their head, and so there's, uh, you know, there's there's definitely concerns there of course there's also ethical concerns using psychedelics especially in populations with mental health disorders raises many ethical concerns ensuring uh in, you know informed consent managing potential adverse reactions and no navigating societal stigma associated with these compounds are are challenges that need to be addressed and not likely there's also regulatory regulatory and uh, legal hurdles so the legal status of psychedelics remains, uh, you know, illegal in most places, even with potential therapeutic benefits, navigating the regulatory landscapes and potential legal constrictions or restrictions can be a daunting task. And of course, with any compound, there's a potential for misuse. So any discussion on psychedelics especially must be uh, considered with the potential for misuse. But that being said, you know, there's a proof of concept that a part of the psychedelics can promote some neuroplasticity within the brain, which can be useful for conditions like depression. And I think if the molecules themselves can be modified to be biased towards one effect of them versus the other, I think that would be the coolest or the most efficient way to go rather than trying to give them in their naive states and uh, trying to just mitigate the the end outcome. I think modifying the molecules is probably the way to go. Either way, research itself was a great study. It underscores the potential power of psychedelics, not just as recreational compounds, but uh, definitely as as pharmaceutical tools to unlock many different mysteries of the brain. And uh, yeah, and it you know the road that uh, is ahead for the psychedelic research. I think it's filled with some promise. It also has a lot of challenges. You know, just as with any research and. Researchers around the world continue to explore the the potential benefits and and downsides of psychedelics, and, and I think it'll be a, a cool to see as it as the journey goes forward. Um, you know, to see how the optimism and the caution and upsides and downsides sort of sort of uh, develop. So, with that being said, thanks for joining for another uh, paper discussion review. Uh, www.theneuronetwork.org. You can find us on all major podcast players if you have any papers or if you have anything that you would uh, want to be talked about within the episodes, feel free to drop a link. Uh, we have contact forms on the website as well as you can reach me myself at uh, Twitter or X, I guess I should say now, um, at Nick Burgraff. And uh, you can look up our Instagram page, The Neural Network, as well. So with that, have a good week.